0: everyone welcome back to another podcast today i'm delighted to be joined by winnie caesar Winnie is the Global Head of Strategy at Credit Sites and was previously the Head of Credit Strategy and a Managing Director at Wells Fargo. Winnie has also spent time in the energy and power investment banking sector, as well as high-yield healthcare and high-yield trading, before joining the Wells Fargo Credit Strategy team to build their leveraged finance strategy product. At Wells Fargo, Winnie served as a co-head of Women Go Far, participated in the Women's Leadership Programme in 2016-2017, and was a Golden Spoke recipient. Further, Winnie was selected as one of Charlotte's Business Journal's 40 Under 40 for 2020 and was one of 12 women invited to participate in Bloomberg's New Voices program in 2019. And finally, Winnie is a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg TV, CNN and Yahoo Finance. Winnie, thank you so much for coming on. Can I start off by asking you where we are in the market cycle today?
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So the market cycle, that's a great question. I think that a lot of market participants are looking at the past 18 months and trying to figure out, did we go through a cycle? Was that a proper cycle? Because it it was just so extreme in terms of both the type of hit to cash flows that a number of companies had to take, and then also the central bank response. My view is that it was a proper cycle when you look at the companies that actually defaulted and went out of business. It was a number of issuers that had been under some pretty extreme stress for an extended period of time. A lot of companies in the high-yield healthcare space, in the leveraged loan retail space. And those issuers had been, you know, for lack of a better term, just kind of circling the dream and needed some sort of catalyst to really trigger that restructuring event. So I do think that we had kind of a proper reset in terms of the market cycle, but I do think that there's also a lot of really interesting nuance when it comes to different sectors and where we stand in the the market cycle. Historically, when you look at kind of credit cycles, you have these three very distinct periods where you have whatever the default catalyst is going to be, where the, the cycle kind of rolls over. And then you have a period of real repair of balance sheets, of the leveraging of a focus on capital allocation and how are we going to be good to our bondholders and, you know, maintain kind of steady operating metrics. And then as economies get turned back online, you see this period of consolidation, which is often driven by a lot of M&A trying to buy growth. And you see a lot of re-leveraging go along with that period And then you have kind of the deterioration of fundamentals where, you know, perhaps those those transactions are not playing out as one expected. Perhaps the cost savings are not um, adding to cash flows to the level that management teams expected. And you have these unintentional re-leveraging triggers. In this cycle, it's like all of those things are happening all at once. And depending on what sector and what specific issue you're, you're looking at, it could be that balance sheets are being repaired and in much better shape than they have been in a long time. I think that energy is a good example of a sector where we're really seeing management teams return to a conservative capital allocation model, uh, whereas the leisure side of the economy, airlines, cruises, theme parks, you know, we're starting to see cash flows get turned back on, but a lot of leverage points are still really, really high. And so you can kind of argue that are we still in unintentional re-leveraging or was this kind of an intentional thing or are they actually being good stewards of capital by maintaining enough liquidity to continue to muddle through? Um, So it's tough to say where we are in the market market cycle on a wholesale basis, but I do think that last year was kind of a a proper reset button.
0: Awesome. And can you give us an overview or a picture of the U.S. credit market performance for high-yield, investment grade, but also the 10-year in regards to spreads, Mm -hmm. returns, and possibly year-to-date?
1: Sure. So the credit markets have been a little bit boring this year. I'm not going to lie. We had a, a spectacularly exciting year last year to be a credit strategist. I learned a lot. It was really fun to see some volatility in the market. And this year, it has felt like just kind of beta compression, carries on. And high yield and investment grade both have traded in a very tight band, very narrow spread ranges, uh, about 13 basis points in investment grade, that is near kind of all time tights in terms of annual trading ranges for spreads, And in high yield, it's closer to, you know, call it 40 or 50 basis points. So still a very tight range, a little bit more excitement there. And both asset classes have performed pretty well. Spreads are tighter year-to-date. Yields are a little bit higher year-to-date in both markets, with a lot of that coming more recently with the leg up that we've seen in Treasury markets. Treasury markets have been interesting. I think everyone had set up at the beginning of the year, expecting this reflation trade and tapering at some point to cause yield curve steepening. Maybe we'll have a taper tantrum, maybe we won't. And q one, it looked like we were going to maybe get that. And then all of a sudden we saw rates just you know move lower again, and everyone was kind of scratching their head. And then this quarter and the end of q three, rates have gotten a little bit interesting again. And that I think is very much driven by the fact that people are expecting a lot of these supply chain headaches, a lot of the inflationary pressures. That have started to become a bit more persistent than transitory, however you want to define transitory nowadays. Um, and that has given people a little bit of pause around the rates market. Now, I think that when you look at kind of treasury performance, it's hard to get you know, much past a 1.75% yield on the 10-year, mostly because there's still so much cash on the sidelines. And really, that explains a lot of the corporate credit performance and U.S. investment grade and high yield, they're becoming almost cash proxies at this point. It kind of doesn't matter what spreads are going to do so long as they don't get really volatile. People just need to figure out how to earn some sort of income, how to earn some sort of yield. And U.S. credit is one of the largest asset classes. It's much more liquid. And if we are truly in kind of a recovery cycle in terms of economic fundamentals, that means that things should probably be relatively okay for the near term.
0: What about the best value across corporate ratings to to the year end?
1: Best value is a really tricky one. I think it it very much depends on the investor mandate, right? All of our hedge funds who came in last year and were looking at credit with outsized total return prospects, are out of the market right now. They're looking at, at USIG and high yield and even distressed and saying, this is so kicked over, valuations don't feel good. What's the total return upside here? So if you're looking at from a kind of total return perspective, value is probably really hard to find at this point. Maybe you can find something in airlines, in leisure, where things are trading a little bit outside, outsized um, relative to the broader market ratings. I really like the crossover zone. The higher rated double B issuers that have relatively short duration, I think it's a great cash proxy. You're not going to be hitting home runs in terms of total returns. But if you have some cash that you need to put to work, you need to earn three to 4%. It feels like a really solid place to put your your capital right now. But it's definitely not an exciting trade, right? I mean, I, I wish that I had something much more exciting to say about the, the credit markets right now. Last year was great. This year, it's kind of like, Things are steady. We'll see where things go.
0: Winnie, can you tell our listeners what your thoughts on about the curve positioning to Mm year-end?
1: Curve positioning is a really tricky one, right, because it's going to be so dependent on two big factors. The first is what on earth is going to happen in the rates market? Is the Fed going to announce a a November taper? Are the markets going to finally have a, a really big reaction to that? My instinct there is is probably not. It's been so well telegraphed and we've seen kind of enough of a move recently in the intermediate and long end that we're we're probably not going to get a a really big bout of indigestion. And then also the new issue question I think is pretty big. How much are issuers going to try try to jam uh, into the market from now until year end? Uh, Because it does feel like we're getting a little bit of investor fatigue when it comes to new issue. Deals had been pricing so tight, People still have cash, but heading into the end of the year, people are not really willing to stick their ducks out. They'd rather have some cash that they can preserve to set up for 2022 if we hit a little volatility post the taper. So when it comes to curve positioning, I'm kind of favoring the front to intermediate part of the curve. Across IG and high yield, things are really, really flat. You're just not getting paid to extend out the curve. And the prospect of total return losses, particularly in the long end of IG, feel pretty hefty right now. So I would not say, you know, that things have steepened up enough at this point to to extend out. And so it's really kind of the three to five year in high yield, three to seven year in investment grade. That seems the, the sweet spot of the curve for right now.
0: Okay, and to elaborate on your differences between um, IG and high yield, what's your outlook for future IG and high yield performance?
1: Ah, uh, This is where I get my crystal ball out <laughs> and I try to to try to predict the future. <laughs> yeah, the, These types of questions as a strategist are, are basically my bread and butter, but they're also so tough, right? I, I can't predict the future. I don't have any more information than anyone else. But when I think about maybe comparable periods, for high yield and investment grade and what next year may look like, I think that 2018 provides a kind of interesting playbook. In 2018, you had central banks embarking on a tightening cycle, particularly the Fed. They were hiking rates in the front end, which is not necessarily our base case for the beginning of next year. But it does feel like people are kind of pulling forward those rate hiking expectations, particularly as inflation numbers, continue to come in pretty hot. You also had these kind of issues related to trade and tariffs, which I think is very similar to what we're seeing on the supply chain side of things. Now, the the positive aspect of that is that many people are calling for the supply chain issues to start to be resolved by, you know, maybe Q1, Q2 of next year, um, and then have kind of a more full resolution by the end of the year. So, you almost have kind of the opposite effect of 2018, where things continued to escalate over the course of the year. And then we had that pretty particularly violent sell off in December that was just immediately bought by everybody and their grandmother. So, when I think about 2018 and then the outlook for next year, that means that it's going to be a really interesting positioning in credit. You're going to have to go down the credit rating spectrum to pick up yield and have some insulation from continued volatility, particularly the long end of the rates curve. Also, leveraged loans are going to probably be very much the favored asset class, uh, which I think a lot of high yield fund managers are probably moaning over right now because they're seeing a lot of interest in loans and also the private credit market. So, you know, that means to me that next year, total returns and investment grade are going to be really hard to come by. You might get a little bit of excess return from some incremental spread compression, but total return losses are kind of my base case right now. High yield, you could probably eke out a little bit of, of positive total return, but it's going to be a tough one, especially given where valuations are. Now, you know, that being said, we still have a long ways to go to the end of 2021. And as we all know, things in the market can kind of change on a dime. So it really all depends on where we end this year. Do we you know, make it through the taper announcement, another round of debt ceiling roulette in the U.S., more property woes in China, commodity price volatility and, and appreciation? All of those things feel like pretty meaningful risks in the last quarter of the year.
0: Wow. Okay, that was that was awesomely in depth. Thank you for that. To keep your strategist hat on, even what are your thoughts on being underweight and overweight in certain sectors, mm-hmm. regions, but also sovereign bonds?
1: Mm-hmm. So you know, sovereigns have some heavy sledding, right? I mean, they're they're the quintessential risk-off move, and you know, particularly in an inflationary environment where you have central banks starting to edge closer to tighter monetary policy, or at least announcing tighter monetary policy sovereigns have a a pretty significant challenge ahead of them in us in the euro region in a number of regions so you know if i'm kind of thinking in the portfolio manager multi-strat realm then i want to be in things that give me a little bit of cushion against any sort of inflationary pressures continuing to play out a bit longer than expected But that's a relatively short-term trade. I think that one of the things that people are really missing in the inflation question is really considering, has COVID and the related economic issues when it comes to supply chain, when it comes to labor markets, has it truly changed the economy? Are we going to see in 10 years Things that have been a direct result of all of these supply chain issues and the labor issues. I'm not necessarily convinced that that's going to be true. I think that there are still some pretty significant secular headwinds when it comes to an aging workforce in a number of different regions. You know, technology continues to be kind of an offset to inflation. When When you think about even just the energy sector, clearly energy prices have increased pretty materially over the past year. That being said, you know, the technology (laughs) in the energy universe is just getting better and better and better. And it's going to be cheaper and cheaper to produce oil cheaper and cheaper to produce clean energy. And clearly we're seeing a big focus on that and transition to toward that And you know that's a big part of the inflation equation. Uh, So you know, short term, I would say you need to be protecting yourself against these inflationary pressures, probably in floating rate assets or equities, high yield to an extent as a good cash surrogate, underweight U.S. investment grade, probably a little bit more cautious on, on the euro investment grade and high yield markets as well, and then longer term. You know, starting to pick your spots where you think that we're going to have this inflection point that shifts away from the pandemic and post pandemic economy and more toward an economy that looked like what we were experiencing in 2012 through 2018.
0: Okay, so what point for you do you think uh, represents a buying opportunity for the tenure?
1: Uh, I, I like the tenure at one and three quarters. I don't even know that we get there. To be honest, I think that it, it's a little bit capped. we were We were there at the end of q one, and that's kind of when you saw the the big move. Um, but one of the things that you have to consider when you're thinking about the ten year is, sure, you know the Fed is going to be tapering. But also, how much does the Treasury need to issue next year? And when you look at the funding needs, they're a lot lower, which means that you have this kind of natural relief valve that, so what the, so what if the Fed's not buying more and more and more and, and starting to taper? It doesn't matter because there, there are fewer securities out there anyway. And so you have this natural supply and demand normalization.
0: Okay. And to keep on the uh, theme of, or or transition back to the theme of uh, corporates, how significant to you are potential return losses for IG and and high yield given certain extension?
1: So that's a a great question and one that a lot of clients have brought up lately. You know, I think that we've actually seen a, a good chunk of the total return losses for high yield. When I think about kind of the shape of the treasury curve now, I would expect, you know, some more moderate steepening in 5s, 10s. So long as the Fed isn't saying, hey, we're going to really aggressively hike rates in 22 and 23, that kind of keeps the front end anchored a bit and the five years should benefit from that. So return losses in high yield don't feel quite as scary to me as perhaps an investment grade, where duration in the asset class has just been so extended that they're highly, highly sensitive to changes in yields in investment grade we've had you know a whopping 10 basis point week over week move in yields. 10 basis points it's not a big deal right except that's translated into 75 basis points of total return losses which feels pretty material when you're opening up your portfolio and you're like wow i'm down almost a full percent on a 10 basis point move uh so i do get a bit more concerned about kind of the extension there
0: okay and now um it'd be interesting to move on to more macroeconomic general questions. You've mentioned inflation a few times. How sticky is wage inflation to you?
1: I mean, I hope it's sticky. I hope there are employers saying, oh, ha ha, just kidding. Actually, I'm not going to pay you more. So, you know, the wage inflation question has a couple of different Components. You know, the first is people who are currently back in the market, getting paid, perhaps getting paid more because there is the labor shortage. I, I think that wage inflation is pretty sticky. The bigger question is people coming back into the labor force. You know, we've seen a pretty significant shift in labor force, particularly for women who are still a little bit um, at the whim of schools and childcare and you know needing to make sure that they are you know able to take care of their kids basically and and not able to be a part of the workforce you know maybe to the extent that they had been previously or would like to be and then you also have the fact that you know maybe we don't necessarily have full employment in the leisure side of the economy in restaurants and all of those things it, it seems like there are a lot of businesses currently looking for employees, and it just kind of depends on how quickly people want to come back to those jobs. And this goes back to that kind of reckoning of, of the post-pandemic economy. Does the past 18 months and the you know, reality that a lot of people kind of had this, this cash flow lifeline sent to them when it comes to enhanced unemployment and then also the stimulus checks in the U.S., that offered a lot of people the opportunity to really rethink, like, do I want to do this job? Is it is it worth it to work in the service industry, which is known for terrible hours and terrible compensation? Or do I want to do something else? And so I, I think that in the near term, the wage inflation is actually pretty sticky. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that the consumer is just in this rock solid place, right? Because when you look at consumer prices, they're kind of outpacing wage inflation on a, a pretty real basis. And, you know, I'm feeling that very personally. I went to the grocery store yesterday and spent $90 on three bags of groceries, and I wasn't buying anything all that expensive. It was just, you know, the normal milk and bread for the kids and some deli meat. But yeah, I'm seeing that definitely in my grocery bill. So I I think that the wage inflation is probably sticky for now. As we continue to see the labor economy transform, we might see a little bit of deflationary pressure on the wage side of things. Uh, But the wage inflation, you know, shouldn't be just viewed as this consumer in a really solid place because consumer prices are really starting to eat into that wage inflation.
0: One of the things I've noticed in the markets is that businesses have uh, much more, you know, valuable collateral and more cash on their balance sheets now Mm -hmm. than compared to 2008. Why is this? But also, does this contribute to, um, you know, an extended bull run?
1: I mean, cash is king right now. Everybody has cash. Consumers have cash. Businesses have cash. The government needs to have cash, but apparently the U.S. government's about to run out of cash. <laughs> and the, the business side of it is really interesting because we've seen so many issuers leaning on the debt capital markets just to you know, put these war chests of cash on their balance sheets. And how they spend this cash and the pace at which they spend it is going to be a really significant driver of financial market performance, be it in the credit markets or equities. I think that right now, a lot of credit investors are saying, hey, you have all this cash on the balance sheet. Maybe gross leverage looks a little bit bloated, but net leverage feels like it's A-OK, um, and the mistake would be there to assume that then we're going to start returning that cash to bondholders and, and deleveraging through actual debt pay down. I don't think that's going to happen because if I am a you know large company in America that's borrowed at two and a half three percent, feels pretty good not to pay that down. you know why why would I repay that? It's like people preparing their mortgages. So I think that instead, what we're going to see is a significant return of share buybacks, of dividends, of using a lot of this cash, which is really debt financed cash, to pay out shareholders. Um, and I do have some longer term concerns about the viability of that strategy. I would much rather see investment in business, um, even some M&A that is you know, kind of accretive to shareholders and, and perhaps deleveraging leveraging over time. So we're really focused on that kind of capital allocation strategy of corporate America over the next 12 to 18 months, because I think there are going to be some pretty big winners and losers in both the bond and equity markets based on how companies decide to, to spend down that cash.
0: Well, awesome. the last question I have for you, Winnie, is to do with the Evergrande contagion. How important is this um, to the rest of the world and how has it and will it affect uh, China Um, as well as their neighbors and, and across the pond?
1: Yeah, I mean, Evergrande is definitely some of the top red research on credit sites right now. Our team in Singapore has done a great job covering the situation, So Evergrande to me is really interesting because I don't necessarily think that we are headed towards a repeat of 2008 in China, where you had a property and housing crisis that then flowed through to the broader financial system and was a significant challenge. I am more concerned about two things when it comes to Evergrande. First, you know, whatever happens in China is going to have ripple effects around the rest of the world in terms of strength of economic growth. And so, you know, perhaps having to give a bit of a haircut to GDP expectations in 2022 and 2023 related to the slowing in the Chinese property market is is something that you should consider. You know, there are material implications for commodities and a number of other sectors, I think also it's really important to look at the Chinese government and how they are viewing economic policy in the context of the Evergrande situation. You know, does this reflect a shift away from kind of the pro-debt capitalist mentality that had started to really take root in China towards more of a kind of socialist, you know, we're not going to tolerate these elevated debt loads. Clearly the the housing market is a significant market for the government to kind of monitor and and keep in check. And so there are some idiosyncrasies there. But it would be very concerning for me to see this kind of shift towards a more socialist view of Chinese economies. And that would have pretty significant ripple effects for global growth as well, and just how kind of the global financial system does business. So I think it's important on a number of factors, not necessarily because we're going to have a 2008 redux in China, uh, but because there are a lot of signals that are coming out of the Evergrande situation that I think investors should pay attention to.